welcome to Soundlore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke. And I'm David McDonald. On today's episode of Soundlore, we will be hearing a conversation between Dr. Alicia Lola Jones and Dr. Kyle Adams about Dr. Jones's recently published book, Flaming, the Peculiar Theopolitics of Fire and Desire in Black Male Gospel Performance, recently released by Oxford University Press. Dr. Alicia Lola Jones is assistant professor here in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Her research interests include musical masculinities, ecomusicology, music and theology, musics of the African diaspora, and music and foodways, or gastromusicology. Her book breaks new ground, analyzing the role of gospel music making in constructing and negotiating gender identity among black men. This conversation was originally hosted by Dr. Kyle Adams, associate professor and chair of music theory at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. Dr. Adams earned his PhD from the City University of New York in 2006, where his dissertation explored chromaticism and pre-tonal music. His bifocal research agenda involves music of the 16th century and hip-hop music, and he is published in Theoria, Music Theory Online, and the Cambridge Companion to Hip-Hop. This conversation was part of the Jacobs School of Music Community Conversations, and we thank the Jacobs School of Music, Dr. Jones, and Dr. Adams for permitting us to adapt their conversation for this week's episode of Soundlore. My name is Kyle Adams. I am the chair of the Department of Music Theory here at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. I'm also this semester the faculty director for the Global Popular Music Team. In her book, Professor Alicia Lola Jones describes herself as, quote, an African-American, heterosexual, cisgender, female femme, ethnomusicologist, theologian, music minister, conservatory-trained vocal musician, men's studies scholar, and peculiar Pentecostal believer, and we'll talk a little bit about how all those identities intersect with her book. As she says in the book, Flaming examines the rituals and social interactions of African-American unmarried or unpartnered men who use gospel music making as a means of worshiping God and performing gendered identities in and beyond Christian contexts. So with that, I'd like to give a warm welcome to Professor Alicia Jones. I love it, thank you. And thank you so much to colleagues at the Jacobs School of Music who have opened up this space to address um, issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice in research uh, by allowing me to share research that I've held dear and had to fight to uh, be able to do. And thank you, uh, Kyle, for being a great colleague. It's been awesome getting to know you through the Global Pop Music Initiative and for Jason and Javier and Constance behind the scene. I really appreciate you all. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'll take the questioner's prerogative and just start with about a minute of my own reactions to your book. Um, as I've told you several times, I am a complete outsider to the world that you discuss in your book, and it's been fascinating to me for that reason. But I think one of the things that I personally appreciated the most was that I know as an ethnomusicologist, you will probably bristle at me saying that you give an objective treatment of the things you describe, because I know that we, we sort of uh, tacitly agree that there's never any real objectivity, right. but, but you present such a, such a, an un, a non-judgmental view of both the theological and cultural traditions that you describe and of the musicians who are often finding themselves in conflict with those traditions. And what I found was that I got the impression reading the book that a Pentecostal minister or one of the musicians you talk about could both read your book and say, yeah, that's a pretty fair representation of the, of the state of things. Oh. And that's a very wonderful quality to find in a book. I imagine it was probably pretty difficult not to interject your own opinions and your own feelings. And I, I left, I read the book feeling that I know where you stand on all these issues. And at the same time, you didn't um, enforce your own perspective on the reader. So thank you very much for that. Wow, thank you. That that really means a lot to me. And I think it's indicative of a multiple consciousness. Um, uh, my hope is that it reflects a womanist way of doing research, 
which brings the elders into the room, which brings my mother of a particular era who was raised in the holiness tradition. And as the saints say, she believes holiness is still right. And I agree with her. Um, and also the aunties and uncles who fervently adhere to many of the principles. I wanted them to know that I uh, respect and also uh, a reason uh, within the tradition. Um, I also think it's reflective of good, solid mentorship. Uh, the core of the research with my uh, dissertation advisor, Melvin L. Butler, who um, self-identified in the classroom and in his research in ways that were, were instructive to me and that demonstrated how embodied um, realities matter for not just representation, but um, really capturing what's at stake in these scenes. And so there, there are several conversation partners that are within the discourse and that are in my community that are ever present and in my head, if you will, um, <laughs> as certain decisions were made that really uh, reveal tensions in, in these topics. Thank you, I really appreciate that. Of course, and, and I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Um, it, just telling the audience how you got into this research and what were some of the motivating questions that the book was trying to answer? Yeah, so as you know, in the introduction, I share a couple of stories, but there were several stories that led me to um, actually embark upon the research. Um, it was my experience uh, in music ministry and in pulpit ministry, noticing um, the, the sort of homosociality of ministry along vocational lines and just trying to get at those particulars. Um, I was disinterested in outing people or making people feel like I was enacting a violence afresh, but rather just trying to get at why there were extra discussions about the nature of people's interactions or uh, the extent to which people were um, familiar with one another beyond what they actually accomplished in their roles as worship leaders and recording artists. Um, there were also everyday um, observances that I had just realizing how the men in my life moved about the world in ways that uh, were um, uh, in relationship to their blackness and to their gender um, or their gender expression. Um, and um, really showing me that even as a black woman, there were things that I needed to know about blackness moving about in Chicago and Washington, DC. Um, so um, in addition to what I just mentioned, there are two scenarios um, that really inspired me to make the decision to do the research. That was um, when the artist formerly known as Tone um, came out as openly and, and unapologetically gay. Um, there are accounts where it was kind of, um, he didn't expect to do it, but he did it. And in doing so, um, actually revealed uh, the, the sort of quality of love uh, within the community, or at least the application of love, how as as I see it, and then secondly, um, wrestling with the loss of a mentor of mine, who um, really was like many men in my community, a man who did not sire children of his own, uh, but was a godfather to many. I refer to myself as a part of his musical progeny. And that is Eric Terrain, who was the founder of the Children of the Gospel, a programming initiative um, uh, activating the musical lives of about 500 children annually since uh, the early 90s through the Washington Performing Arts Society. Um, so many stories, many, many stories. I have plenty to share with you. Um, I wrote about two that that really inspired me. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting because for me, um, as soon as I opened the first page of your book, you speak with such a, a love of these communities and such an authority that I naturally assumed that you felt like you had an insider perspective on the world in which you were moving. And and I was surprised to learn that that you said you felt simultaneously as an insider and an outsider. 
Um, and so I wonder, um, you've alluded to this a little bit already, but I wonder if you can elaborate on, on some of the ways in which you felt like an outsider to this culture. Right, right. Well, in many ways, you can kind of say that I am continuing the sort of work that was done um, by my colleague and predecessor, Dr. Melanie Burnham, through her research um, with the terminology of the insider hyphen outsider. Um, this sort of challenge uh, to the assumption that because I'm Black, because I'm Pentecostal, that I lay tidily within the same sort of uh, lines of belief as those who um, I share community with. Um, but there are ways in which I um, differ. Uh, I went to divinity school, for example, when many of the folks uh, rely on organic um, insights as well as biblical literalism. Um, I do respect those perspectives and interpretations of, of Holy Scripture, and I um, draw from uh, formal training in an interdenominational um, setting. Um, as a woman, I cannot <laughs> begin to presume that I understand uh, how men or butch or masculine, um, et cetera, of people move about in the world. I cannot and I will not um, uh, position myself in that way. And so um, even as you mentioned, mentioned my um, self-identification as a, a cisgender heterosexual woman, um, who I write about elsewhere as someone who um, is attracted to and not attracted to men. I can, I can be friends uh, with men. I can be sisterly to men. And um, I have a husband who I love and adore, uh, the gamut. Um, and all of those things inform the way in which I, I look at the community. And I'm, I'm eager to be a present learner in these spaces, looking at my tradition of fresh, um, engaging folks and reasoning with folks, walking through the logics, even as I participate, observe, and interview people. Uh, so it's, it's been really interesting, and I must give folks credit. Um, even though I and my family members had anxiety about committing to this research, in general, when folks figure out that I am familiar with and committed to the community, they have been willing to be challenged and to learn uh, more often than not. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the conversations that have continued um, at the release of this book. Great, thanks. Well, um, let's get into some of the some of the meat of the book a little bit. I'm just going to read uh, the first. The first time I was really struck by something um, from your book, and this is on page 24, you say the pulpit and the music pit for instrumentalists are perceived as the masculine and or heteroperformative domains. The congregation and the choir loft are fashioned as the feminine and or queer domains. So can you elaborate for us on, on what the expected gender roles are within a traditional Pentecostal service? Yeah. So of course there are exceptions to the rule. However, um, there are ways in which, um, for example, um, there are jokes and memes that abound among uh, my elk of music ministers that rely on some of the, the queering of space that is kind of understood to occur uh, during worship. For example, um, the choir loft, there might be, and I include a meme in the book of a woman who is, who gives a nonverbal communication when she sees her um, love interest in the tenor section. Um, the the uh, facial expression is supposed to, uh, or I deduce is to convey some sort of skepticism when she sees him, these sorts of, uh, um, nonverbal cues, these sorts of images and memes uh, rely on this idea that um, these shared domains like the choir loft um, are a part of the sort of rituals of feminizing space. Um, and I talk about how many um, people, uh, men who are invested in um, retrieving uh, male attendance 
within churches and in specifically the congregations, um, the pews, um, they have promoted an idea of defeminizing the church. That is defeminizing the overrepresentation of women and um, uh, the overrepresentation of women in uh, vocal performance specifically. Um, and I have noticed, this is going back to one of your earlier questions, a part of what I noticed as a vocalist in the church um, was how the instrumentalist pitch, uh, pit um, was increasingly male um, and that apprenticeships for those uh, posts were increasingly male and it was hard to kind of traverse the, the that um, traverse that space. Um, and similarly, the pulpit um, is still a space that is contested, um, not just in Pentecostalism, which by the way, Pentecostalism has a variety of, um, of women's participation, but the major um, denominations and organizations such as the Church of God in Christ, um, or Kojic as we uh, call it more popularly, is known for not allowing women to ascend to senior pastoral leadership. And yet it is the most um, popular site for training music ministers who make it big in the recording industry. Um, and so there are some patterns that I, I notice in terms of humor, how the punchlines are, are made uh, through nonverbal um, and visual communication. And just through my own experience of being regulated to certain areas within pulpit and music ministry. Yeah, and one of the interesting things I noticed was this, what seemed to me a real contradiction between the fact that um, the men in music ministry were almost expected to be queer in those spaces. And yet at the same time, homosexuality is seen as a sort of extreme form of deviance. Um, and I'll, again, I'll, I'll, I'll read a couple of things from your book. You say, while the male preacher is imagined to perform a symbolically heterosexual, masculine, and dominant gender expression, the male vocalist is stereotyped as performing symbolically queer sexual potential, feminine gender expression, and a subordinate position in worship leadership. So there's that expectation that the male vocalist will be a, a queer presenting man. Right. And then it, it, almost, almost um, right around the same part, you say homosexual men are perceived as the embodiment of sexual deviance and sexual violation. Mm -hmm. So it seems that there's this, there's this almost inherent contradiction within the church about how they perceive these men, and yet the fact that they're, they're considered a sort of invaluable part of the worship experience. Right, right. So here it's important to, um, to connote the ways in which the commoditization of Black sacred music, as we see here in gospel music, is one of the key factors for analysis because in these settings, the pastors who are likely the preachers are also the equivalent of uh, the person who hires and fires. Um, and so uh, this sort of hierarchy emerges as the musicians are not the decision makers. Um, and if they are salaried, that salary is um, determined uh, likely by the pastor, perhaps, um, leadership in the church, um, but the the tastes and preferences of the pastor dominate often. Um, and people like uh, one of my conversation partners and um, uh, ongoing collaborators, Charles Anthony Bryant, he has said that as a um, now openly gay, Kojic raised minister of music, um, he often feels as though there is a posturing he has to undertake. Um, and there is a way he has to balance even sonically um, uh, through speech and song, um, his baritone voice. So as not to, uh, to upset um, the dynamic and um, to assume a relative submissive, submissive sort of, of posture, if you will. Um, and that was a reoccurring trope. Uh, that idea of commoditizing worship creates a dynamic where um, employability is related to efficacy as a worship leader, 
taste, and then also um, a compliance with a particular sort of social dynamic of, of service, uh, of service, reasonable service um, that people navigate. Um, and there are healthy um, dynamics. There are people who model um, healthy masculinity. Um, however, um, it is often held up against this, this, um, these tensions that, that still persist. Um, and I, I suppose I should put a, a little, another slight content warning on what I'm about to discuss, which involves slavery and the black experience in America. Yeah. Um, but I was fascinated by your, by your equivalence of, or your, your, you make the analogy, which I guess is, is common, uh, between sort of deliverance from homosexuality and deliverance from slavery. Um, and, and I thought that was a, a really, really fascinating take on, um, on, on the experience that some of these men have. Would you, would you elaborate or describe that a little bit for the audience? Sure. Uh, well, in true ethnomusicological fashion, in the ethnography, I encountered uh, Bishop Carlton Pearson's um, commentary on the moment with Andrew Caldwell, where um, he, uh, who is a man who has stood at the intersections of charismatic Christianity, um, a person raised in the Kojic church and uh, was the darling of people like Oral Roberts, right? One of the major televangelists of the, of the 20th century. So he's seen various strands of conservatism in, in the religious landscape. And as he reflected on the Caldwell moment and the contradictions uh, that people were discussing, he said, well, while we are at it, and I'm paraphrasing, um, we ought to talk about um, the anxieties that are um, attached to Black sexuality and particularly Black male sexuality. And if we're going to talk about um, sexual healing to evoke Marvin Gaye, if we're going to talk about deliverance in one sexuality, particularly uh, among those who are descendants of the enslaved, then we need to talk about the, the horrors of colonialism. Um, uh, we are still coming to terms with the idea that uh, women were raped within uh, enslavement, um, but it is not discussed the ways in which men were raped, were sodomized, and were tortured over time. Um, there are many who have written about it um, and that the torture was so extensive um, that um, those who were enslaved were seasoned, um, seasoned being a term for tortured, um, in order to break them. Um, and others were made to observe this breaking so that folks would not run away or uprise um, uh, to claim their freedom and to, in the language of the day, steal themselves. And so he makes solid the connection, and I take him up on the proposition that uh, we need to talk about the scapegoating. We need to talk about how those sexual encounters, men with men, white uh, colonizers and enslavers with uh, the black enslaved, indigenous enslaved, um, also put a mark on um, the parameters of same gender um, intimacy and encounter. Um, that plus the demonization of the Black body, the hypersexualization of the Black body. Um, you'll even recall in the first chapter, I talk about um, the ways in which the portrayals of the demonic were firmly represented as a dark male ever erected body. All of these representations and um, hypersexualizations plus the trauma need to be taken into account if we're really about the agenda of deliverance, according to Bishop Pearson. And I think he's onto something because in many ways, um, you're one of the first people to ever actually prompt that aspect of the book. In many ways, people shy away from that detail and that argument. And I, I commend you for deep, diving into some deep, deep water, but I'm curious to keep following that, that conversation. Well, I, I mean, I commend you for bringing it up. It was it, it, this, it had to be a difficult topic to research and to look into. So it's it's very uh, it's, it's very laudable that you did so. Um, perhaps we could lighten it up a little bit. Um, I never I never thought in my life I would see the phrase pole dancing for Jesus. Absolutely. 
Um, but there it is as the title of your fourth chapter. Um, so I want to talk about, about two figures that feature in chapters three and four, um, Patrick Daly and Jungle Cat. Um, and each of these people uh, perform in a way that, that deliberately contravenes expected gender norms. Mm -hmm. right, so Daly sings in the soprano range, uh, what many of us would call would think of as a countertenor. And Jungle Cat does, again, pole dancing for Jesus. Um, so, so can you talk about the ways in which these two performers sort of problematize preconceived ideas of masculinity? And, and tell us about the response to each of these performers. Great, great. So um, the first four chapters are my take on sort of the core aesthetics of Black music, uh, uh, dance, drum, song. Um, and Patrick Daly is a part of how I look at song um, and the gendering of sound. Um, Patrick Daly is an alum of Morgan State University, and then he went on to Boston um, to pursue a career as a trained countertenor who leads worship um, in the Baptist tradition. He was raised in Nashville, Tennessee, and had great images of uh, black male countertenors. Um, he would cite to you Ken Austin, Derek Lee Reagan, whose voice was a part of the composite for Farinelli. Um, and he counts it his joy to be a multi-genre artist um, who loves God. Um, uh, to hear him speak of his devotion was humbling for me as a person who's pretty traditional in my observance of, of, of my beliefs. Um, he talked about the ways in which he navigates um, people's um, uh, experience of perhaps what might be the uncanniness of his sound. And he does so by making sure that um, he uh, transmit what he would describe as the anointing as the approval of God on his ministry, his service as a musician. Um, and um, I encountered him through the Word Network, a cable uh, television program that aired the service from New Psalmist Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and um, like the footage of Jungle Cat, um, it fell into my lap. Uh, someone asked, what can you make of this uh, particular ministry and I interviewed him and he's another um, ongoing conversation partner, um, trained countertenors, countertenor. And I do have um, some conversations with countertenors as a result of this research that folks can access on YouTube, Thomas Allen. Um, uh, just check it out. If you type in my name and countertenors, you'll find an extended conversation with a, a group of guys who are friends um, and who are making it on the concert stage. With Jungle Cat, who was born Tavon Hargett, he was raised in um, remote North Carolina, moved to DC, and is a librarian by day who happened to see an infomercial about pole fitness, decided that the, the, the fitness that was um, uh, promoted through this infomercial resonated with him and he bought a pole, started teaching himself pole fitness and a year out decided that he wanted to um, respond to the sort of longing for home that he had on Resurrection Sunday or Easter uh, by dancing to a song, I Need You to Survive in his um, living room. And that footage that he said he uploaded in order to save space on his computer. That footage was taken up by Washington Post, Huffington Post, and then he, eventually I got it. Um, and it was just a great way to um, use um, a, a provocative headline. It was literally a headline um, to get at the assumptions um, that were made about what people would see should they click on the video um, that uh, rested on actually some stereotypes within gospel music performance. That is that men who um, perform with the spirit moving upon them may in some way demonstrate a feminine masculinity, masculinity or in times past, it has problematic, 
problematically been called effeminacy. Um, and through that performance, I was able to really talk about the homoerotics of men worshiping a God conventionally constructed as male. Um, and it to this day has been a really interesting conversation starter uh, for this research, pole dancing for Jesus. And, and for the record, he claimed that he did not know of any other context for pole dancing before he embarked on his, on his ministry. Is that correct? He does claim that he did not know of pole dancing. Mm -hmm. um, he describes himself as uh, heterosexual, um, Baptist, Pentecostal, who uh, practices tantric celibacy. So, I mean, it was just ripe for a lot of analysis. It's <laughs> <laughs> not for me to confirm or dispute. Um, but I will tell you, he and Patrick and many of the men, I, I hope you will believe me when I tell you, each one of them just really humbled me with their personalities and really my experience of their heart. Um, uh, Jungle Cat just, I mean, to this day, he checks in. He is a very caring um, individual and... Um, you know, he's com competed nationally. I just saw footage of him doing what he said at the time of the interview, which was um, doing uh, couples uh, pole uh, fitness competitions. I'm seeing the footage now almost, what, 10 years after that initial footage was posted. So yeah, he's, he's another <laughs> who keeps on giving. Great, great. Um, I, I wanted to, talk a little bit about gospel go-go music. I was just thinking, like, um, though the book is entitled Flaming, we as music researchers often describe performances against something um, or towards something. And um, I have a chapter on gospel go-go, um, which is my way of getting at the, the swinging of the pendulum in the other direction on this continuum of masculinities. Um, performances of masculinity that might be described as hyper masculinity, which we in gender studies would understand as another form of queerness, because what is the masculinity that is becoming hypered? Um, gospel go-go is a gospel interpretation of go-go music, uh, DC's indigenous funk music uh, that is highly percussive, that relies on a lot of low frequencies and it is the music that keeps you going and going, hence go-go music. Um, you'll know it through songs like Bustin' Loose um, or Doing the Butt from Spike Lee's movie. Um, this music is a predominantly male uh, music scene in general. And then the gospel expression of it is presented as a safer, um, radical uh, space that is also predominantly male and that has been used by churches um, in their sort of auxiliary events to draw new and unusual attendees to their worship services um, in a way that I describe as alluring using male coded sound. Um, and I, I offer terms like, such as homo musical enchantment, um, homo musical in rapture in order to convey these ways in which the sound that is identified to have masculine meaning is supposed to being, bring in folks of, of the like. It was interesting uh, in the go-go chapter, just to follow up on that, to, to learn that gospel go-go music had encountered a lot of resistance originally among the gospel community because of go-go music's prior associations with certain kinds of subcultures. And so that was, that was fascinating for me to read about. Yeah, go-go music, like jazz, like hip-hop, um, urban youth musics have had this sort of um, uh, um, uh, danger placed upon them. Um, um, it's it's a, a huge part of how we plot urban music scenes among uh, black and brown people. And I do do a sonic genealogy uh, surrounding the percussion element in the music um, making solid the connection between go-go music and the ideas of danger and um, how drumming was outlawed in our, our country and that those tastes and anxieties, those sensitivities 
uh, don't just dissolve, they, they go somewhere. And in this case, um, those same sorts of anxieties um, are transmitted into what people think is appropriate instrumentation, appropriate style for worshiping God. These men um, are in many ways mediators to, for those who don't um, see expressions of masculinity in the church that they identify with. And men have explicitly said that they can identify with the sort of street credibility um, that allows for crying and weeping, um, that allows for um, confession and lament over the loss of loved ones due to youth victimization, um, talking about underemployment and unemployment, topics that are a little too gritty for the, the, the tidiness of, of the churches. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys can check out people like Peculiar People, um, the, the go-go band that I follow for, for this research. It's really, it's really interesting music. Um, the second half of your book is centers on Reverend Anthony Williams, mm -hmm. who um, for a long time went by the moniker Tone and now um, goes by B. Slade. Can you talk to us a little bit about, about his transition and his identity? Yeah, Tone has been a wonder in the gospel music industry since the 90s. Um, he was understood as a musical prodigy. Um, he is a multi-genre artist, multi-instrumentalist, a preacher's kid from uh, San, Diego, San Diego, California, and uh, was raised in the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. Um, he uh, was married um, for about four or five years um, and got divorced around the time he uh, recorded one of the first parental advisory gospel music albums, or at least an album that was under advisory by a, a known gospel artist at the top of his career where he starts to engage people who were um, who had rumors about him, the nature of his sexual orientation. And then shortly after that, he, um, in an interview with Lexi, um, Cher said he is unapologetically gay. And as a result of that confession, um, which he didn't anticipate making um, in that interview, um, was that was supposed to promote um, an album that was not a parental advisory album, um, he ended up losing all of his engagements from his regular um, clientele and had to really reinvent himself um, he changed his uh, stage name from Tone to B. Slade, which is short for Brian Slade, a reference to uh, the character in Velvet Goldmine that is supposed to be a portrayal of David Bowie. And since he has changed that, uh, changed his name, um, uh, there's a, a phrase that folks in my tradition use, uh, he got double for his trouble. In many ways, though he was a top five producer in the gospel music industry, he has now um, bounced back by leaps and bounds, tributing some of the icons, not just in gospel, but in R&B, um, from uh, Patti LaBelle to LaShawn Pace Rhodes. Um, he actually helped uh, with the Grammy nod recently uh, that Snoop Dogg got, uh, collaborating with Sheila E. Michelle um, uh, Shanice, I love your smile from the 90s. Um, just really also in some ways helping to resurrect the careers of folks who were one hit wonders in the 90s. Yeah, well, he, um, he uh, used a lot of the New Jack Swing sound, if I'm right. So he kind of, it wasn't just resurrecting the artist, but resurrecting that kind of the sound of the 90s too. Which yeah, is absolutely, absolutely. And he, he will tell you, he draws from the icons, from Prince, from Michael Jackson, um, but then also Andre Crouch, who was, uh, uh, you know, known for his praise and worship in Jesus people's uh, uh, movement participation. Like, it, he can do anyone as well as they can, and then he places his signature on it in a way that is inventive. I wonder if you would talk to us about the image on the album cover 
Um, and, and especially you, you unpack the word unspoken a lot in your book and what it means to be unspoken. And so I wonder if you'd explain a little bit of that to the audience, please. Yeah, so the imagery, okay, I did ask him about this and he's really playful um, in many ways. So the blue eyes, for example, um, when I asked him about the blue eyes, his retort was, didn't Jesus, isn't Jesus portrayed as having blue eyes? <laughs> and so <laughs> there was that. Um, and then the locks, or the, it looks almost like double strand twists, um, uh, those, that hairstyle, he actually got ridiculed for um, in uh, a lot of the settings. Um, people have very strong feelings about locks um, and men in particular having long hair like that. Um, and so for him, it was representative of one of the many things that people scrutinize about his expression of style. Um, he is bound and gagged. Um, he is being interrogated. This album uh, comes to us after his Naked Truth album, where he literally is bare chested um, and telling the rawness of what occurred to him at the age of six, um, uh, being uh, sexually molested. However, when he talks about being unapologetically um, homosexual, he does not uh, connect it to that violation at all, um, which in these settings, people often describe queerness as people who have, um, who have outward evidence of um, something bad that has happened to them. And so a part of the work that I'm doing is challenging that assumption that to talk about queerness is to talk about um, survivors. Um, unspokenness, uh, as you mentioned, I spent an entire chapter thinking about unspokenness um, as resembling a very popular practicing term among theologians called ministry of presence. Um, the ways in which people who are questioning, who are queer, um, um, by virtue of their participation and consistent uh, presentation of self, um, though violent it may be, um, and an aside, um, African-American men are statistically less likely to leave these congregations because I'm sure people are like, well, why, why don't they just leave? They're less likely to leave congregations that are homo antagonistic or anti-gay than uh, uh, lesbian or same gender loving women, largely because um, according to Richard Pitt, they would rather take the um, inconvenience of just being misunderstood with regard to sexual orientation, then going to say a predominantly white congregation and experiencing the sorts of confusion that comes from the multiple identities of black maleness, queerness, etc. They would rather choose the community whose cultural um, issues they know than the ones they don't know. Um, and so in Unspoken, um, I moved from Ministry of Presence to also think of the African-derived um, power, idea of power in one's silence, um, not just as a, a type of quieting, um, but um, um, a way for folks to shift energies and demonstrate other competencies that are experienced and unmistakable. Um, and I'm speaking specifically of powerful music ministry that can contradict a homophobic sermon that preceded it. Well, I, I, I really love the way that um, your book is framed almost by these stories of, um, on, at, at the beginning, um, Caldwell and also Donnie McClurkin, who we haven't talked about, on the one hand, and then Williams on the other hand, and, and they're very different. Both of them involve what you might call a coming out story. Um, and, and both involve very, very different reactions um, from the church and from the individuals themselves. Um, and it was wonderful to see that the book itself follows this kind of uplifting trajectory overall from the sort of um, the, the dark ways in which McClurkin and Caldwell have had to negotiate their lives to the, the really positive way that, that um, B. Slade or, or Williams has dealt with it. Um, I love the, this quote um, from later in your book where you say, Tony confessed to being homosexual to his fans but did not repent for it. He does not consider being gay a sin. 
Instead, it is the way that God created him. It is his identity. Um, and so I thought that was a really, a really wonderful summation of the way that he felt about his sexuality. Oh, yeah. And he's certainly one of the people who, um, you know, he actually was an important um, aspect of me saying yes to the research. Um, he would, I interviewed him right after interviewing Dungle Cat, Tavon Hargett. Um, it was the year after he um, uh, came, he let us into his truth, his story. And I happened to email him. It was probably, it was the time of MySpace. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm available. Uh, tonight and we spoke for three hours and at the end of it he said you know I didn't know what to expect from this interview he was like you know people have been asking me all sorts of questions and the questions that I saw beforehand were largely theological ethical fatiguing questions that were you know focused on his soul um, but our conversation looked at ideologies philosophy um and music and he said you know i didn't know what to expect he was like you're really accessible and you're very smart and then he began to pray for me he mm. began to pray for me and it was so humbling because it felt like the release the commissioning if you will because he said you're going to need support and you're going to need to know that this is the work of the church and over and over, whether it was being the first woman that these men disclosed uh, their um, identity to um, as a cishet woman, um, or me hearing um, uh, their feedback after they perhaps dropped in on a lecture, back and forth throughout the process, there was um, a ministry and a healing that I'm eager to continue through the conversations generated from this. And um, I, I can't help but believe that um, that conversation helped to set um, a new uh, chapter in my teaching service into motion. Yeah, well, let, it, it's, it's great that you mentioned the future of your work and the future directions, because the, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about was involve the future of the church and, and the future of these kinds of artists within the church. Um, because throughout your book, you, you suggest a, quite a repressive and repressed culture in, in the denomination, the worship denominations that you, that you talk about. And my expectation was that somebody like Tone slash B-Slade would be breaking down barriers and changing this culture. Um, but in fact, he was excommunicated from the church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wonder where you see the future of Pentecostal worship um, and of Kojic and, and, and other related denominations. Do you think that, that the church will eventually come to embrace uh, queer worship personas, or do you think that these, these men will somehow always either be repressed within the worship or find their way outside of it like, like B. Slade did? You know, there's a Negro spiritual that goes, talk about a child that do love Jesus. Here is one. I believe that it starts with just one person modeling a difference, an ethic of care, they call it, um, and showing folks um, uh, their own interpretation, my own interpretation of what it means to be known by our love. And what I have found as I've sat with these communities, whether it's their worship conference um, or their men's ministry or um, just their their lecture series. I have found that folks have actually wrestled with the ideas and dealt with the logics and are willing to go on the journey. I will also say that because I'm well aware of those folks who have been overwhelmed by um, the scrutiny, by the, the, um, the, the rituals, the humiliation, those people I'm concerned about as a woman of faith, that chides my witness as a person of faith. I am humbled every time I open an email by a young man who's a vocalist, who didn't know where he could use his gift, but he saw a little interview with countertenors or saw my article on countertenors and found his tribe 
or uh, a person. Um, I presented after a, a scholar told me I was too religious in my research. Right after that, I presented it for people at the Ailey uh, Dance Company, Alvin Ailey Dance Company. And one of the directors came up or stood um, in the convening and said, you know what, I've had young men tell me they have this interest in pole fitness. Thank you for giving me verbiage to support them in that journey. This to me is the work. This to me is the work of restoration, never mind reconciliation, but recouping those of another fold as B. Slade uh, sings about um, um, and that attaches to biblical texts. Um, I'm that kind of faith leader. And um, this is why this sort of work means so much to me as a music researcher, sharing with you guys great music, but then also being able to be present with folks who, um, who we've benefited from in their spiritual vitality, but we have failed them in our demonstration and excelling in love. I wanna be the difference in that regard. Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University, produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.